Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. It's a podcast about board games. My name is Michael Walker, and I'm here with my good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? We were off last week due to Thanksgiving. Made me reflect of what I'm thankful for. I.e., number one, I'm thankful that Thanksgiving is over. (laughs) I'm also thankful that Black Friday is coming. Great deals on Black Friday. That's the the U.S. uh, Thanksgiving. Yes, a number of Americans expressed bafflement about Canadian Thanksgiving. You have to understand that although we don't celebrate Thanksgiving at the same time that you Americans do, we very much celebrate Black Friday. We definitely do. Like The Americans have a system where they have a holiday every month. I think we decided that we need a nice big break before Christmas, so we just moved Thanksgiving into October instead of November. A nice six-week food coma, yeah. I'm also thankful that Essen is happening this weekend. All sorts of new games being announced. Very exciting. Also excited that the Chinese New Year things are being issued out and why things are going to be late. And I'm also very thankful that the Caribou have finally headed north and we won't get any more traffic jams. Mark, what are you thankful for? I'm actually thankful for Vasily Arkhipov. This is something that I talk about every year, but normally I don't have an audience. So congratulations, everyone gets to suffer through it. On the 27th of October, 1962, a man named Vasily Arkhipov saved the world. Literally. This is not hyperbole. His, uh, his commanding officers wanted to launch a nuclear strike against the U.S. during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And in all likelihood, according to people who were involved at the time, including no less than Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, that would have precipitated a nuclear catastrophe that probably would have terminated the human life on Earth. And he was the one man that stood in the way of it. Anyway, his name is Vasily Arkhipov. Look him up. He did this heroic act on the 27th of October, so I think every 27th of October we should have Vasily Arkhipov Day. I think there should be a statue to this man in every major city in the world, because if you're alive or if you know or love someone who is, you owe your existence to Vasily Arkhipov. Personally, I'm very thankful for Arkhipov, and if everyone would help me in celebrating Arkhipov Day on the 27th of October, that would be very nice. Very nice. That is what we call the intro. Next, we're going to have games we played this week. We're going to talk about some news and why it really doesn't matter. Then our feature game of the day, which is going to be a level 7 Omega Protocol. And our topic of the day is going to be keeping the game moving. Why games slow down and how you can keep them lively and fun. So Mark, what did you play this week? Played Galaxy Trucker Missions. This is the most recent expansion to Galaxy Trucker. We're both huge fans of Trucker, and I acquired Missions shortly after it was published in 2015. This is a board game implementation of some of the features that are involved in the Galaxy Trucker app, the mobile game. And although I've purchased the app, uh, I haven't played it largely because, as I've commented before, I don't really like digital implementations of board games. And so I've, I've never even opened the app. But I bought the expansion, and I hadn't had a chance to play it with people who had already played Galaxy Trucker. I was always introducing at least one new player to Galaxy Trucker. And Trucker is normally very, very good at allowing people of different skill levels to play all at the same table. You can use the Rough Road Head expansion. The people who are more experienced can use those, and the newbies just ignore them. Uh, the people who are more experienced can use more difficult ship layouts, whereas the default ones are more than difficult enough for newcomers. Anyhow, so we had a chance to play Galaxy Trucker with all experienced players, and I have to say I was a little bit disappointed by the expansion itself. I always love playing Galaxy Trucker. I've never had a bad experience with the game, but I felt that the missions themselves relied relatively heavily on these new category of call- cards called Super Cards, which I did not find particularly engaging. They were kind of 
there are a class of card that you sometimes encounter normal trucker, which are so difficult and so beyond the pale of being able to plan for in the context of a, of a chaotic shipbuilding round that you more or less just ignore them and accept that you're going to get punched really, really hard in the face. And I don't mind getting punched in the face with Galaxy Trucker, but all the other cards that allow some degree of mitigation, some degree of pre-planning, some degree of accommodation, uh, that's all well and good. And so missions a lot of the mission structures, again, just relied on these un- relatively unfun cards. And so the clever stuff that missions introduced, and there was some clever stuff, was definitely outweighed by what I thought were relatively uncreative, unfun cards. So I don't know that I'll be pulling missions out again. I always look forward to my next play of Galaxy Trucker with experienced truckers or new truckers or what have you. I'm always intimidated by the size of the box. I've got the, the anniversary edition, but it actually doesn't take that long. It's about a 90-minute game, even if you're you're playing the whole the, the whole shebang, which isn't bad given how much, uh, you know, how much enjoyment and excitement and, and moments of surprise and the delightful agony of watching your ship fall apart. Anyway, and that, uh, many, many words have been said about Galaxy Trucker. All of them are true. And although Missions was occasionally clever, I don't think it added to the experience necessarily. So I'm going to be playing Trucker with the two big expansions again and with the new ship models and everything else all tossed in, but probably not with Missions. And that was Galaxy Trucker. Yeah, Galaxy Trucker. I I was in on that game. And since I've been playing a lot of Euros lately, I accidentally fell into the category of worrying about the points. So it wasn't until the last round where I just realized, like, what am I doing? <laughs> like, this game is not about the points, not about, you know, getting money. It's just about, you know, enjoying the experience, you know, and watching your ship explode. And, like, I agree with you. The You get exploded enough already without these crazy super mission cards. Not a fan. What did I, I got to play Mark's favorite game, Terraforming Mars, with the new Prelude expansion. You played it without me? I know. I'm so sorry. I know. I I promised I was going to, you know, make sure I only played this fantastic game with you, but, you know, it came out. Anyway, Prelude is much more of the same. There's nothing extraordinary except for some of the new uh, corporations they throw in. Uh, Some of them use very clever game mechanics, but the Prelude cards themselves is just like a jumpstart to the game. Like it'll get everyone about, you know, two to three turns in, you get a little boost to your economy. So the game, you know, starts off a little faster, which is just evidence that the designer and players thought the game was too long to begin with. And they had to add an expansion to fix that. And that is Terraforming Mars Prelude. I will not have you say a single bad word about Terraforming Mars. It is perfect. And everyone in Board Game Geek knows that and will tell you that. Funny you mention that. I also played an expansion called Prelude. This is Quartermaster General Prelude. We've talked about Quartermaster General a number of times on the show. This is a Prelude sort of pre-war leading up to the Second World War expansion, you know, 35 to 39, roughly-ish. And it was a Kickstarter that recently got put out by Grigling Games. And uh, same idea, sort of jump-starting the initial game. It's got a number of interesting mechanisms with respect to tension. There are a variety of cards that you play that will increase or decrease the tension, and the prelude will end not at a fixed time, but rather when either everyone's out of cards, because like every Quartermaster General game, you never reshuffle your deck, or when the tension reaches a certain spike. And some cards reduce the tension, and some cards drive it through the roof. And, you know, all in very historically appropriate ways. If you remilitarize the Rhineland, people are going to notice, and that is going to accelerate the pace of the war. But it really helped, I think, with the tempo of the early terms, turns, because Quartermaster General is always about that agonizing tension of what to do with your single card play on your turn, maybe a little bit more if you've got Air Marshal or things like that. But 
Sometimes it feels as though, it, you know, putting out a status card feels like an unsatisfying turn. And you still have that tension in the game even with Prelude. But with Prelude, if you want to, if you, if you build towards it, if you pay for it, you could start the game with a status card. Or you could start the game with an extra army on the map. Or you could start the game with an extra navy on the map. Or you could start the game with extra surprise cards laid out in front of you. And all of which I thought were great. There were interesting little trade-offs in the minigame. The addition of the rules uh, of Prelude were relatively simple. It's more or less just play a card. There's only two card types, and they're vaguely evocative of the other card types already in the game anyhow. So I played with experienced players and with new players, and I I thought that Prelude really helped ramp up the interest of the early turns and while not sacrificing some of that key issue about tempo and agonizing choices later on. I'm looking forward to trying more of it. I don't know if I'll be including some of the, more, the other stuff like fortifications and optional tiles and stuff like that. That just seemed like afterthought stretch goal stuff but the prelude itself was wonderful and i'm very much looking forward to quartermaster general the cold war which is supposed to be coming out in the coming months although it'll probably be delayed by chinese near and so that was quartermaster general prelude i'm looking forward to showing it to you awesome i didn't get to play it because you know you hate me we started another imperial assault campaign it's called it's on the app it's called uh, jabba's realm and i thought the storyline is very interesting and I'm enjoying this one immensely. I think they're just, you know, knocking it out of the park. If As long as they keep up with it, I know they, they uh, just finished with probably what is their last expansion. So I'm hoping that they keep up with the app and keep pushing out new campaigns. There's not much I can tell you about the campaign itself because I don't want to spoil it for people. But the writing's much better and the choices are very interesting. And it's uh, very neat how, you know, different choices and the thing lead you to different areas. And the randomization that we talked about before where you could fight all sorts of weird things, they seem to have fixed that. They seem to have geared it mostly towards the actual mission itself. So, you know, if you're in the desert, you're going to fight, you know, certain things. And if you're inside, you're going to fight other things. So they seem to have tweaked it a bit so it's not so random anymore. And that is Jabba's Realm from the Imperial Salt campaign. Played a game of Spectre Ops. This is by Plat Hat Games uh, a few years ago. I was not... Spectre Ops had been kind of sort of on the periphery of my radar ever since it was published because there are a number of people who swear by it and were eagerly awaiting the expansion that came out not too long ago called Broken Covenant and or are eagerly awaiting the app, which will probably never materialize. But I wasn't that keen to try it for two reasons. Number one, as I said before, Plathat Games has not put out anything that I found good since uh, Summoner Wars, which was the first thing they put out. And it's a hidden movement game. And I do not like hidden movement games. I never have. You know, the sort of Scotland Yard or Fury of Dracula thing where one player or a subset of players are making secret moves and everyone's running around chasing them. I haven't tried that the you know that, that version with Pandemic, and I really like Pandemic. I never bothered that, that module. I've tried all the other expansion modules to Pandemic. But I, I will say that Spectre Ops is cleaner than a lot of other hidden movement games. And I think that in context of hidden movement games especially, the rule system had best be very, very, very clean. Because misplays can ruin the entire game precisely because some some number of people are operating in secret. So it has to be clean. It is very much clean. But I still, I, I just don't like hidden movement games. One of the reasons is they are all 1v-all games as a rule, and I don't like 1v-all formats more on that later. And it's also the case that I just find... In either case, either you 
stumble upon the person that you're that you're chasing, in which case someone gets to be frustrated because you're you're tailing them, and by their very nature, once you've found the hidden person, they're not supposed to be able to do very much. That's just how these games work. Uh, or you're just stumbling around in the dark, and then that's also frustrating. So I, I just find most of the turns to be relatively uninteresting and unengaging, whether I'm the hunter or the hunted. It just doesn't do much for me. This is this is purely a personal preference. Uh, so suffice to say that if you're like me and you're, you've been skeptical about hidden movement games, I don't think that Spectre Ops is going to change your mind. And I wasn't expecting it to, and it didn't, so... It, it's so that. true, yeah. If you don't like fun, like Mark doesn't like fun, then you will not like this game. Spectre Ops is hilarious and amazing. Why do you say it's hilarious? It's it's it's, it's that take that moment where, where you know, you're writing down on the pad and you just say, oh, I have moved, and everyone, like, looks at the board and they think they know exactly where the person is and they all move and they see nothing and they have no idea what's going on and the guy's gotten away and it... It's just a whole. It's an experience. I'm not saying it's mechanically great. It's not. It's not. You know, well written. I think it's just an experience, and I think uh, I think it's a great. Game. I disagree 100. percent I think you're exactly wrong on both. I think it's mechanically sound, but experientially unsatisfying. There was no moments of delight when I when some of us. I can't even remember who stumbled on who when. But this was a victory for the the the, the hunters. The, the the hidden movement person was found several times and was eventually put down. When they were discovered, there was no moments of aha or ahaha or whatever. Or when there was a, I, it was just. I think there were. And I'm not saying I'm not saying that the rules aren't aren't solid. The rules are definitely solid, but there's no there's no uh, hook or there's no like outstanding weird mechanic that's like oh this is what makes that game. It's just the standard hidden movement trying to find people and then saying okay well they can move four. These are all the different places that they can go that we can't see and just trying to lock it down. I really well like you said you don't enjoy hidden movement games. I love hidden movement games, so it's, it's I think it's worth a try at least. Yeah, if you like hidden movement games, by all means. But uh, I, I just found it just mechanical and tedious. I think, well, and I'm I was maybe all, not all people have tried hidden movement games. If you haven't tried a hidden movement game, this is the one I would definitely show people to want to try. Because like you said, it's cut down from all the rest. There's none of that you know additional stuff. This is just straight, pure, one guy hiding, everyone else trying to find him. There's no additional like weird trying to catch the train or trying to save tokens or trying to figure out clues. This is just straight. One I, remember, I remember Scotland Yard being a little more straightforward. Well, but there's no, like, well, there's different ways to travel. In this one, it's just, you know, straight up squares. You move this many squares and you can lock it down. And sure, in Scotland, you have to go by taxi or bus, or, and you only have a certain number of tokens, and you're, yeah, but you have to sort of manage your tokens. Inspector Ops is a car that you have to, you know, drive around and then park somewhere and then leave it and come back to it, and someone's going to ping the motion tracker, and then there are the special ability cards. Like, anyway, we can disagree about which one's more, more stripped down, but. Uh, Spectre Ops is a perfectly reasonable entry into such things, and some people really like Plat Hat games. More power to them. Just didn't do anything for me. Uh, I've written down here for the game that I played some sort of space game. <laughs> uh, could you be talking about Master of the Galaxy? It is Master of the Galaxy. Yes. What would you like to say about some kind of space game, Walker? Uh, Master of the Galaxy is is uh, another game that it feels as though it came out much like Dungeon Alliance that came out a little late. It seems dated to me anyway. It's one of these games where it's a bag builder. You're throwing a bunch of cubes in the bag and you're only drawing three out. So I think it's, it suffers almost exactly the same problem as we just talked about with War Chest. You, you know, you're drawing three coins out of the bag. You're only drawing three cubes out of the bag. So you're very limited on what you can do with the cubes. And that's even if you drew cubes out that you can use in the first place. Other than that, 
it's very interesting how all the different uh, abilities work, how it has all sorts of different races you can choose from, or governments you can work towards, or different goals you can try and try to get some sort of synergy working with the cards, but it all breaks down to drawing three cubes out of a bag and hoping that you get the ones you need at that particular point. I'm not sure if more plays are going to make this better or worse, but I definitely want to try it again. We like bag builders here. We're both big fans of the mechanic, and we're both big fans of some of the games that use that mechanic. Your favorite is probably Orléans. Mine is Hyperborea. But, I mean, either of us are perfectly willing to play the, the, you know, the ones that we're less keen on. That's why I went out in search of Master of the Galaxy, because it's another bag builder. But the way I agree with you. The way that it handles bag building is so bizarre. You start with 25 cubes in your bag, and every turn you pull three. And you don't cycle through your bag like you do in Hyperborea. That's one of the reasons why I like Hyperborea so much, because it departs from the deck builder tempo less. You know, you cycle through your bag, and then you put all your cubes back in the bag. One of the things that I don't like about Orléans is that every turn it's a it's a fresh draw blind from whatever set you have. But you're drawing more in Orléans and from a smaller pool. In Master of the Galaxy, you're always pulling three and you start with 25. So it really is a tremendous shot in the dark about what you're going to get. Your early turns tend to be very, very frustrating because five of those cubes are borderline useless in the early turns much of the time, namely the black ones. And there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. The way you you try to have to tune your engine later on is kind of satisfying in the sort of engine bu- engine building kind of way. And some of the player interaction I kind of like. The way that different uh, conflict cards come out and the way that conflicts work, that is sometimes okay. But there's a whole bunch of cube stealing that's kind of weird. Uh, the fact that the cards all work in slightly different ways that are not clearly identifiable on the cards. This is one of those games that's far harder to teach than it should be. And I'll, I'll, I'll take full blame for our first playing because I got a number of rules very, very wrong. But going over the rule book again for our, our subsequent playing, because we played it twice over the past week, I was, you know, remind, I, I understood why I had such a difficult time and why I made such a hash of it. The terminology is not particularly well used and the way that different cards are is not consistently explained and the notion of a project is... Anyway, there's a number of, there's a number of issues. The flow is not real. The flow is not real. And so at the end of the day, I, I really think that although it's different from the other bag builders, I, I really would... The way that you tune your engine and the way that you tune your bag to accommodate that engine, that sort of interplay, which exists in all pretty much all the bag builders that we've tried, with the exception of Warchest, really is better instantiated than the other ones we've tried. In, in Master of the Galaxy, the, 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 the noise ratio is so high to the signal by virtue of the, the size of the bag that it really does feel like you're fumbling around in the dark and that you're just trying to you're just trying to acquire cards not because they do something that you want them to use but simply because that they're a staging ground for all the trash that you don't want to be using in your deck and I I do not find that as engaging as the alternatives. And so I'm not particularly optimistic about Master of the Galaxy. If you want to try it again, I, I'd be willing to, uh, to put it through its paces again. But from what I've seen, I, we're probably going to stick with our prior bag builders. Yeah, and the, and the other thing about when you finally cash in abilities, it seemed to be so all over the place. Like this one, you get your cubes back. This one, you, you can choose to get your cubes back. And there was so many different rules to when you got them back. It just, like I said. it. Yep. Different cards work differently, even though sometimes the iconography is the same and it's a whole deal and the timing is strange, even though it's a relatively stripped down face structure, the timing sometimes gets weird. Yeah, a little more complicated than it needs to be for no good reason. Exactly. 
I got to try the expansion to Paper Tales. It's called Paper Tales Beyond the Gate. We talked about Paper Tales before. It's a very promising drafting game. We are very firmly of the opinion that when it comes to drafting games, pretty much the pick of the litter is Fairy Tale. But Paper Tales, I have to say, has uh, quickly been getting to the point where, for me, it might be the equal of fairy tale and if things continue this way i might even start to prefer it it has a number of things a number of virtues in common with fairy tale namely hate drafting is very easy it's very easy to eyeball what other people are looking for it's very very rules light uh but nonetheless has that element that you want in a drafting game where every choice matters there are a number of cards that you want and a number of cards you don't want to pass to the opponent you have to make these these trade-offs and beyond the gate introduces a number of things. One of the things is just more cards into the deck, more things to draft, more interesting effects that play off of things like age and when units die. It also introduces new buildings. So the uh, in addition to the cards that you draft and all these buildings you can build, in the base game you always had access to the same buildings and everyone built the same buildings every game. And now there's some variety. So there's seven buildings and, and uh, three of them will be different every time you play. That's kind of cool. And it also introduces a solo mode and the ability to play it up to seven players. I don't know what it is with drafting games going up to seven players. It must be a thing. I don't know why. It, it, there, I can imagine no reason why a drafting game would want to go to, go to seven players. I don't know why players. any game would want to go to seven. So Paper Tales is quick enough that I, that I might be willing to try it with six or seven, but it probably wouldn't be my preferred setup. I did try it solo. The solo game was surprisingly cute. Basically, it has this AI-driven opponent who gets points for certain kinds of cards. So every time you draft, every time you pull a, a, a stack of cards, you know that if you pass them certain kinds of cards, they're going to score as a result of that. And then there's this way of generating a semi-random army strength for determining wins and losses. It wasn't bad. It was kind of cute. Uh, I, you know, it, about a 15-20 minute solo experience. So if that's the kind of thing you're looking for as an option in a drafting game, then then Paper Tales definitely delivers. I'm still not terribly pleased with how expensive the game is. You know, at this point, I've I've sunk in in terms of retail uh, after taxes somewhere between eighty and ninety bucks for what is basically a simple drafting game, and I'm not a I'm not hugely supportive of that. It's a very pretty game. I do love the art. I, I do feel a little bit guilty about having spent so much money on it, but I do very much enjoy Paper Tales and Beyond the Gate. I think is a solid expansion. So there you have it. I am getting some negative towards Paper Tales, and I think it's putting too much emphasis on the combat part of the game. I feel as though there's so many different avenues that you can go to get points, and I don't think they score enough, and I think if you don't put more into the combat, then you're not going to score enough points at the end. And not on top of that, there's even more cards that will give you additional points in combat if you win. Do you think this is an instance of the game not communicating clearly about how to do well, or if this is just a case of you wanting the game to be something that it isn't? No, I just think it, it's proposing these different strategies of how to get points, but if you don't also do combat, which is not going to allow you to do these other ways, I just, you know what I mean? I think, you know, there's other cards other than the combat cards in order for to get combos going to get points. Yeah, but that's I don't. I don't think they're enough. They're mostly in support of the combat cards. Some of them, but some of them are like aging combos or other thing, other, other ways to do it. I don't know. That's just my feeling. Well, but I look at the way that the aging works, and I think of cards like, for example, just just off the top of my head, the giant snake. The giant snake is a very very effective combat card unless it has aging tokens on it, in which case it's an it generates economy. So then the question is, do you want to try to manipulate that such that it is a combat a frontline combat unit for longer, or do you want to let it retreat to the back ranks where it's not going to fight for you because it doesn't have combat value anymore, and use the money that it generates to put out frontline combat units and. 
after all, since most of the buildings kind of dovetail with more combat capability anyhow, I don't really think that it's a problem that much of the game is determined by conflicts so, with your neighbors. After all, that's, that's where a lot of the that's where a lot of the player interaction comes in because you always want your military total to be higher than that of your neighbors. Maybe it's exactly what you say. Maybe I'm just looking for something that's not there. Maybe combat is the main part of the game. Possibly. Next time it, it, it'll be uh, next time we play if we play together, or even if I play by myself, I'll try to make a note about how many points were scored from what when it came for, to the winning scores and we'll see if maybe it's just a, a perception issue or maybe it's substantial and even if it is there, whether or not that's a problem. So that's what we feel about Paper Tales. So that's all we played this week. Now on to the news and why it does not matter. So Fog of Love is getting some expansions and of particular note is the nature of the expansion. The designer of Fog of Love said that although he always intended the game to allow for queer relationships in that either party can be male or female, the uh, it was inevitable in his estimation that based on his own experiences and just his own outlook that he was going to leave some things out. And sure enough, some members of the LGBTQ community have said that some of the things in Fog of Love don't sound quite right. They, you know don't seem quite appropriate for their lived experiences. And so as a result for the expansion, he's reached out to Nikki Valens, who's uh, a, a trans envy person, and she is going to be helping him write new scenarios, new cards in specific expansions that are going to be designed uh, specifically to allow you to play out LGBTQ relationships in Fog of Love. And I think that that's a great way for the, the, the board game market to be a, just a tiny bit more inclusive than it is now. I like a lot of Nikki Valen's work. We're both big fans of Mansions of Anna's Second Edition. The Fog of Love system didn't do a whole heck of a lot for me, but in terms of the way that it set up scenarios, I did think it was kind of interesting. So I am kind of curious about how the expansions are going, the direction that the expansions are going to take that. So that's what's happening with Fog of Love. So Z-Man has taken over Lords of Vegas line from Mayfair, and they're going to be, be putting out the main box and the expansion up, and a new Underworlds expansion. So that'll be interesting. Underworlds like Shadespire? Just like Shadespire. You have you put this sideboard, and you play like a little gangster mini gunfight. Okay, great. Middle. It's going to be fantastic. I can't wait. Do you like Lords of Vegas? I've only played it once. I didn't mind it too much. It's not... Like, I mean, with me, if there's a game that I like... I usually just go out and buy it right away type thing. Sure. And think, it's like, okay, that's got something I like. It's got that one mechanism. It's got that hook. Or, you know, I want to play it again. I haven't gone over the top to want to play Lords of Vegas. But like I said, with this Underworlds, you know, might bring something new, make me want to try it again, and maybe I'll, I'll enjoy it more. We have a podcast announcement. We, we're not ready to lay out the official policies and uh, rules yet, but we'd like to announce a program that we're going to be launching in the coming weeks. This is the So Very Wrong About Games Serial Wrangling of Ancillary Glut, or Swag Swag, if you will. We are tired of storing some of our games. We're tired of having games on our trade list and that are not valuable. So what we're going to be doing in the coming weeks is we're going to be setting aside some of our collections that we want to go to a, a worthy home or an unworthy home. And uh, basically what we're going to do is we're going to start shipping out games to whoever wants them at the cost of postage only. So if you're willing to give us the money to ship it to you, we will ship it to you. And we will indeed ship from the United States because I, I do cross into uh, uh, America on the reg. So it'll be very, very easy for both Canadians and Americans. If you're neither of those two things, we can try to work something out. Honestly, though, the stuff that we're, that we're going to try to get rid of, we're not going to be offering up like, you know, $200 games. So if you live across the pond or in South America, it might not be worth your while, but at any rate. Uh, so look forward to more information about that and uh, for helping us to get rid of stuff in our closets. Uh, we're not going to be making any cash off this. Obviously, this is just to cover expenses. We just want to 
have games go to uh, homes that want them. Exactly. We want the dust removed and these games on the table. So my bit of news is because Essen is coming up, there's been some huge releases, and I'm only going to talk about one that's caught my eye. It's called Blackout Hong Kong by Alexander Pfister and Pegasus Games. Looking forward to it. It looks very interesting, even though it's not cooperative. It's like one of those things where you look at it, it's like the lights have gone out. We're all going to try to work together to survive. Unfortunately, this is going to bring out, you know, the the other part that's all mess each other up. So, you know, someone fails and one of us will succeed and the rest will not. But other than that, just the whole concept of, you know, need to survive this blackout. It seems like it's going to be a very interesting game. It's very visually striking. You don't tend to see Euro management games or indeed anything by Alexander Pfister to be that starkly black. And I'm I'm looking forward to trying it too. A Fister a Fister design is is always at the very least workmanlike, and I've enjoyed some of his prior stuff. I haven't loved anything he's done, but I am looking forward to seeing how this turns out. One of my favorite designers is Matt Gertz, and he's going to be putting out an expansion to Concordia called Concordia Venus. This is going to be both a standalone version of Concordia and an expansion, so if you don't have any Concordia, this is a way to get started. Venus introduces team play into Concordia, and it alters the way that some of the cards work. Uh, Full disclosure, I'm involved in editing some of the rules documents, uh, so I'm kind of involved in the project, but in a very, very, very peripheral way. And this is going to introduce yet more maps. Concordia already has lots of different maps that you can play on, and this is going to have yet more. So lots for new Concordia people, lots for returning Concordia people. This will be fully compatible with all the previous expansions, including Salsa and all the other maps. And now you can play Concordia with up to six people playing in three teams of two. Or you can play in two teams of two, or you can play with some of the new uh, new elements purely competitively up to up to five players. So there's going to be a lot on offer here, and I'm looking forward to seeing what Mac does with the system. All right, my bit of news. I'm sorry if there's going to be any screaming, but Mark might, you know, lose it. The Terraforming Mars app is going to be coming out in a couple of days, the 17th of October. I've heard nothing but good things about it, so that's something to look into. It's going to be out on the PC first and on uh, your devices after that. A digital implementation of a game I already don't want to play. Sounds it, perfect. Aren't you excited? Yeah, I'm, I can't wait. Final bit of news uh, to look out for is there's going to be a Kickstarter campaign launched very soon for Chip Theory Games' next game called Cloudspire. I've commented before when we talked about Too Many Bones, when we've talked about some of other Chip Theory game stuff, that some of their design work is interesting, but their approach to components makes zero sense to me. And one thing that I couldn't help but notice in Cloudspire, the rules are not yet available, so I can't tell you too many details about how it plays, is that it has some geomorphic hex tiles for terrain that look not unlike uh, sort of the, the the tiles for the Mage Knight, the board game, or those classic tiles from HeroScape or what have you. Just These are made out of neoprene. They've made neoprene mats for these suckers. And this, I, I just do not understand the obsession. Like, cardboard tiles work fine. They, they, they stay next to each other fine, and they, you know, they have nice hard edges, so they'll slot right up against each other. I just ugh. they can be bumped and they slide around. These neoprene ones are going to lock down on the table. They will not slide around. They'll be it'll be great. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't I don't understand. I it just it just seems like the epitome of them using those materials for the sake of using those materials. And then we can ask for giant ones and we can use them for mouse pads at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, I'm vaguely curious to see what kind of game Cloudspire is going to be. As I've said, their previous design, Triplock, didn't do anything for me. But Cloudspire, uh, they're they're putting a lot of effort into it, and they're very, very excited. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what they have. And that is all the news and why it doesn't matter. 
onward to our feature game. Our feature game this week is going to be Level 7 Omega Protocol. This was put out five years ago by Will Schoonover at Privateer Press. Privateer Press says that this is their best-selling board game of all time, and it's been out of print since 2016, and so they're reprinting it in a second edition that is live on Kickstarter right now. As of the time of this recording, on Monday evening, the 15th of October, they're about halfway towards their goal, so funding looks all but assured. If the funding falls through, well, then this recording will be about as irrelevant as all our other ramblings, so we can safely file it away under that category. So the Level 7 series is kind of weird in that it's three kind of sort of thematically linked games put out by Privateer Press. The first game in the series was Level 7 Escape, which was a co-op design and which was uh, more or less Drek. And Level 7 Omega Protocol came out the next year and it is a 1v all kind of sort of dungeon crawl, except it's not really a dungeon. It's, it's sort of a near future alien bug hunt. And then the year after that was Level 7 Invasion, which was also co-op, but was kind of a co-op dudes in a map game. And Walker and I have talked about that a number of times before. It's a perennial favorite of Walker's uh, collection. And they've all been they've been three very, very different games. And the, but they've all had sort of an, you know, Area 51 was a prelude to an alien conspiracy kind of theme. It's like an arcing storyline throughout the three games. Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, so the storyline in Omega Protocol being that you are professional soldiers working for the American government to destroy the facility from which people escaped in the eponymous Level 7 escape, uh, invoking Omega Protocol, namely, it never existed. What are you talking about, subterranean facility? We don't have any subterranean facilities. Ignore that smoking crater. So, Walker, why don't you tell us what one does in Level 7 Omega Protocol? Well, in Level 7 Omega Protocol, you're trying to maximize your actions while generating as little adrenaline as possible because all the actions you take will produce some amount of adrenaline, in quotation marks, that uh, form in tokens. And when you're done your turn, you're going to pass all these tokens over to the the mastermind or the evil player, and they use those tokens to uh, take their actions. Next, you're trying to neutralize the largest threat to minimize the damage that you're going to take in return, i.e. you're going to try to take the person that's going to do the most damage to you, so you're going to take less damage during the opponent's turn. And then, on every other turn, you're going to ask how the line of sight rules work again, (laughs) so you can be reminded on how the game works. Okay, should we start with the line of sight? Well, I'm going to mass it all together in the fact that there's three different... A lot of games do it all together. This game breaks down line of sight, movement, and shooting in three totally not... I shouldn't say totally different because it's, it's, you know, it's just counting squares, but there are different rule sets for all three of those things, and they're all different. Sure. So let's let, let's talk about that. So the line of sight systems, we'll talk about... We'll, we'll, we'll turn back to the issue of adrenaline later. But let's let's address line of sight right away because line of sight is a persistent issue in almost any game that has line of sight. A number of games very cleverly dispense with line of sight altogether, and that is generally for the best. Again, we talked about that when we talked about too many bones. I always talk about it in the context of Assault on Doomrock, and um, Claustrophobia is another example of a game that, that gets rid of it and altogether. That, that big uh, MMORG game. Guards of Atlantis. Guards of Atlantis. Guards also, of Atlantis. no line of sight. Absolutely. Uh, so we always prefer it. Well, I always prefer it when, when, when that happens because I have yet to meet a line of sight system that was consistently satisfying and consistently 
intuitive and consistently plausible in terms of realism. And that includes, for what it's worth, tabletop miniatures games. I know a lot of tabletop miniatures players say, it's, oh, well, you know, the great thing about that is that line of sight is always trivial. Well, yeah, you can always, well, you can always usually, sometimes with some difficulty, especially if you're, you're, you're fat and lazy like I am, but you can lean over and see what a figure can see on a tabletop miniatures game. But then there's the issue of, well, when is it obstructed? How much is it obstructed? How much do you need to see? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Anyhow, so let's talk about the line of sight here. So line of sight in board games tends to have coalesced around one of two standards. There's the center-to-center standard, where you draw an imaginary line between the center of a hex or a square, and you draw to the blah, 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 blah. Or you pick a vertex, and you try to draw a line to other vertices uh, from another system. Uh, Omega Protocol dispenses with both of them and, and uses yet another system. There are pages and pages and pages and pages of threads on BoardGameGeek about people talking about the line-of-sight system, complaining about the line-of-sight system, trying to figure out the line-of-sight system. I will say, and I'll let Walker return back to the sentence, but I will say this. I actually kind of like the line of sight system. I'm not going to say that it's that it should be the default in any system, but I think it works. I've internalized it. I think I know it, 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 it lets, allows you to determine cover very, very easily. And I have no difficulty whatsoever eyeballing line of sight in the overwhelming majority of cases in level 7 Omega Protocol even perhaps to a greater frequency than I can eyeball line of sight from a center to center system on a square grid. Uh, now, part of that, it's worth it's worth noting, and then I'll let Walker complain about it some more. Part of that is because most of the distances in level 7 Mega Protocol are relatively short. We're talking about guns with a range of 6 squares or 8 squares sometimes. Sometimes for Herculean attacks, we're talking about 10 squares. But even then, there's any number of environmental effects or uh, enemy abilities that say that they can't be targeted past a, a certain range, and that range is often 4. So we're not talking about these great board-clearing attacks. So as a result, the circumstances where you actually apply line of sight tend to be very, very close quarters as a rule. And so, yeah, I kind of like the line of sight rules. I, I think you're I love the line of sight rules. But like you said, just because they're different than every other game and they're different than the movement and the the shooting, it just makes it. You know, for newer players or if you don't play the game all the time, it's just harder to, you know, burn them into your memory and remember how they work every time. It is the case. Okay, so I'm going to agree with you for the most part. They did something different. And whenever you do something different in uh, in, in a space where there are overwhelming standards, you often run into trouble. And if you're going to be doing, be doing something different, it had better be much simpler than the over, than these standards. They did not do that. They made something that was a little bit more in-depth than, than the overwhelming standard. But the problem is... Even if you compare it to other, even if you're talking about other line of sight systems, a center to center or a vertex system, they differ in terms of their own standards too, right? So there's always these tricky little edge cases. So I think to a certain extent it's unfair to apply to Omega Protocol the standard that, you know, its line of sight system is tricky, whereas all these other games like Imperial Assault, like Descent, even like Seal Team Flicks, the only game that matters, they have tricky edge cases too, right? So it's not as though, it's a difference in degree, not a difference in kind. It's true. That having been said, I do agree with you that it is extremely strange that the way that line of sight works and how line of sight is calculated is different from the way that movement works and is different from the way that range is calculated. There's, Walker's exactly right, there's movement, and then there's range, and then there's the shortest path, which is not the same as either of those two things. They all use diagonals in a different way, because Privateer Press, in so many other games, they love... Another problem that's that's persistent in... Uh, grid maps and square square spaces is what do you do with diagonals 
Do you allow diagonals? Do you allow it at 1.5? Do you say that it costs one extra every other time, et cetera, et cetera? Some games just say, no, 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 you just don't move in diagonals. But that looks weird, and it, it, it tends to have strange situations. The way they do it in, in Level 7 Omega Protocol is every movement, you're allowed one diagonal, and whenever you're tracing range, you're allowed one diagonal. But then when you're tracing line of sight, you can use diagonals sometimes, and then on the other time, is you can use diagonals in a row, but only if it's only diagonals, never different directions, but you can use different orthogonal directions. I'll grant you it's a thing. <laughs> There you go. They've said for second edition that they're going to change the line of sight rules. Interesting. Making a third version of the line of sight rules because they have the one the ones that's published, the errata that clarified something about diagonals. Now there's going to be a new one. At time of recording, now we haven't seen what they are, but when and if we get our hands on the new line of sight rules, I will post an addendum. All right. So let's move off of all that and let's go back to the adrenaline system because it's much like claustrophobia or rise of Moloch, where like I've already said. The good players or the team, whenever they take actions or do certain things, they generate adrenaline. And then at the end of their turn, they pass over all this power over to the bad guy and they use that to do their abilities. So while while the team is taking their turns, they want to limit what they're doing, make sure what they're doing is very effective because they don't want to generate extra stuff to give to the bad guy. I'm going to have to disagree with you when you compare it to claustrophobia or or Agents of Moloch, because in Agents of Moloch, when you activate your unit, you have the standard activation sequence. You can do your move and you can do your action. That's about it. Same thing with claustrophobia. And indeed, the things you do in claustrophobia, the way you you maneuver your heroes, doesn't really impact how much power the the demon player gets. The demon player gets power by playing their own little minigame. And I, I stress this because it is precisely this interaction that I think makes Omega Protocol the best 1v all game in this sphere that I've played. Because every action you take as a commando, you know you're making the overseer more powerful. You know you're giving them more options. You know you're giving them more literal literal and figurative ammunition for their turn. And so you have to consider, is it worth the two adrenaline that I'm going to spend on this action to wipe out these aliens, or should I just leave them alone? Or should I leave it to somebody else who might have a better way of dealing with it? And as a result, not only does that inform what you decide to make, it also, the way it's been implicated, completely frees up the activation sequence of each commando. You can move three times in your turn and then do a search action. You can move once, shoot twice, and then call it a day. You can shoot three times and not move anywhere. Sometimes shoot even more than that. Because not only is it a question of how much adrenaline you can spend on your turn, and it's an entirely free-form activation sequence, do whatever you want when it's your turn. But you choose these different stances at the top of the round that influence how fast you can move, how much you're allowed to move, what your defensive values are, all these other things. And so in terms of just the core elements of the activation sequence, something that is often bog standard and incredibly dull in lots of other even good games, there's lots of nuance, lots of options, and lots of ways to allow for different approaches and different specializations, even from round to round. On one turn, the rifleman might be in charge of laying down suppressive fire, and on the other turn, the rifleman might be in charge of just booking it to the other end of the map, and vice versa. So that's one of those ways in which uh, you know, the, the bog standard formula of you get to move and then you get to attack, or sometimes if you don't move, you get to make two attacks. Level 7 Omega Protocol blows that up. That's exactly what, I'm, what I wanted to talk about as well, is the fact that it totally breaks the standard. Normal games, move and shoot. This one, if even if you want to, you can spend your whole turn shooting. The stance cards that uh, Mark was talking about, they're different for every character. They all have three different stance cards that they pick at the beginning of their turn. And on those stance cards are going to have an adrenaline cap. So you can do as many 
actions as you want until you hit that cap and they can be the same action over and over again it can be a variety of all sorts of different actions you get to choose whatever you want so amazing system for sure and that's even after at the start of the game you've customized all your soldiers you get these kit cards with these great little bonuses and different different types of things that match their specialization and you get to start out as the alien mowing badasses that the commandos ought to be and you get to decide what little toys you get to have and that that honestly that level of customization right at the start on top of choosing what kind of commando to be is is just wonderful yeah depending on how many players you get a certain kit cost and every character class which there are at this moment eight have they have their own kit deck and there's also a general supply kit deck that you can choose from as well another great customization part of the game and now I think I want to spend a little bit of time talking about sort of collecting all these topics together and talking about the role of the overseer. Because in all of the other one be all games like this that I've played, usually the role of the bad guy or the overseer or overlord or whatever is the least interesting. Because although they have a bunch of different types of bad guys to move around the board... It's usually just a function of, okay, play a couple of cards or something, and then everybody on the map just activates, and they just get to move and attack. And they don't have special little toys. They don't have anything like that. Part of that is by design. Uh, sometimes it's just because I think the overseer or overlord role is kind of like an afterthought because they couldn't work out an AI system that, that worked very well. More on that in a, in a little bit. But the overseer in level 7 Omega Protocol is by far, by heads and shoulders, above all the other such roles that I've ever played. And that's because, number one, of the adrenaline system. They, you know, they get fed by how, much, how many actions the commandos get. But then it's a question of they don't automatically activate all their units on the board every turn. They have to pay to activate the units that they that they want to activate. So even there, there's a level of choice that a lot of other games like this don't allow. They also have special abilities that they can further power with adrenaline. It is vaguely evocative, Walker's entirely right, of the way the demon player works in Claustrophobia. Claustrophobia, though, isn't a 1v all game. It's a one-on-one game where two players are, are playing very different kinds of units. But the fact that it is some, in some ways evocative of Claustrophobia is high praise because the demon player in Claustrophobia doesn't feel like a dungeon master. They don't feel like they're running the game system. They feel like they're in a competitive experience. And the same is true of playing the Overseer in level 7 a Mega Protocol. Something about bad points that I'm going to talk about later about the Overlord, but we'll go with that later. I want to talk about uh, the success system. I love successes. When games that you just roll dice and you count and how many successes you need because they've just run it down to one rule. You don't have to like roll to hit and then roll to wound and then see how many wounds you do. It's, it's this target because uh, of the stance they're in or because you're shooting. This is the number of successes that you need. It's one and done, and I really enjoy that type of system. Yeah, it's so simple. Everybody has a number. That's the number of successes you need to get. If they're in cover, it's one higher. Sometimes you have toys that modify that, but not terribly often. And then you just throw the dice, and that's it. And that determines whether zero, one, or two wounds is inflicted. It's a marvelously stripped-down system, and it's certainly nothing like Kill Team. No, definitely not like Kill Team. <laughs> yeah, so like Mike was saying, one or two wounds, it's like it'll say you need you know f- three successes for one wound or seven successes, and you'll get two wounds. I, I think that's an amazing. And you only have to roll once. One value, and you're done. Absolutely. So what was the negative point you wanted to say about the Overseer role? You want to go about... Well, the thing I wanted to bring up is I really wish there was a turn order 
I, I'm not happy with the fact that all of the heroes go and then all of the overlord goes. I really enjoy in these other games we play where, you know, the one side activates one unit and then it goes back and forth. It doesn't, it, so it doesn't lead to this, you know, I'm going to gang up all on one guy and there's nothing I can do about that because, you know, my hands are tied or the same as, you know, the good guys. It's like, oh, you bring out the big guy or, you know, we're going to, you know, target everything on him before you even get to activate him type thing. That's absolutely true. Given how freeform a given character's activation is in terms of what they're allowed to do and how they're allowed to do it, the fact that the turn structure is very rigid and there's a very, very small number of interrupts or reaction abilities does kind of make things feel more stodgy and, and, and stale than need be. And you're right. When it comes down to playing the Overlord, typically what you do, and this is one of the ways in which being the Overlord is very, very similar to the the, the bad 1v all mechanics and lots of other games, you look over at the commandos, you say, okay, this person's the most vulnerable. All right, I'll just plow all my firepower into this character this turn and it's 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 unsatisfying and it feels gamey and you know there's not much they can do about it it's one of the ways in which the the problems of the genre rear, rear their head all right i only have three bad points one we've already talked about the three different systems for movement line of sight and uh shooting the last one is the just the components uh and that's that's only in the, in this first edition it'll be cleared up in the second edition one hopes in the in the first edition they put all the hero models out in a hard plastic but they put all the aliens out in a soft plastic which allowed uh on some of the larger models for the bases to warp so they're sort of like rocking chairs and it's sort of like looks wonky when they're in their board on some of the bases they're rocking back and forth and it's so bad that i couldn't help but notice on the kickstarter video that privateer press put up for for on on the project page for level seven omega protocol the models that they were using had the floppy bases so i have to assume that what they did was they took all the available models they had and found okay this one's the best and even it had a curled base it's not a huge deal it's not like it's it's falling over or moving around the board it's just they're a little floppy and it it's a little unfortunate i watched the video i thought for sure it was like the new stuff cuz the guy the heroes were like brown and the guys looked different i thought for sure they no, had the, new I, models i saw a fear hunter with a curved with, base with, with and a rocking so, chair gotcha. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't quite a rocking chair and this is this is of course after the boiled water treatment or or you know, all, all the standard tricks that, that minis gamers have, it's still the case that the, 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 the bases are going to bend a little bit. You know, the sculpts are fine, but they say that the new the new edition is going to have better plastic. Who knows? We'll see. One thing that I don't... Another thing that I don't like about uh, Omega Protocol is, and this again is, is an endemic problem in the genre, is the balance is kind of questionable. It varies wildly from scenario to scenario. So... As a competitive experience, it's often a little unsatisfying. So, for example, the, the first scenario in Omega Protocol is more or less a walk for the commandos. The Overseer still gets their options about how to spend their adrenaline, and they still get choices, but they're not going to win. Uh, I, I've, I've heard tell of Overseers winning the first mission, but we're talking about a vanishingly small percentage. And that isn't a problem in and of itself. I, I don't demand that a game has perfect balance, but this, this segues into my major misgivings about Level 7 Omega Protocol and probably why it doesn't hit the table nearly as often as it should based on how mechanically clever it is and how, how many options and, and lovely choices it has. And that is that... Basically, when it comes to games of this genre, I prefer co-op games. I prefer straight co-ops where the enemy AI is automated uh, or you're, you don't have to have someone running this role. Because the role, even though the Overseer role, again, is better than all the other roles, I don't think it's a very satisfying role. For one thing, the social dynamic is weird. 
everybody ganging up on one player seems a bit off. And that tends to encourage a kind of I'm the game master kind of thinking very often. It's like I'm responsible for making sure that everyone has fun. That's not a burden that I want to put on anybody. You know, they should be able to let loose and and just play their own competitive angle. And given that the scenarios are so unbalanced, I I don't feel that they're able to do that. I'm going to talk quickly in there. I've never had – I can't think of a good experience before I've done – Dozens and dozens of descent campaigns and imperial salt campaigns where one person was the overseer and that person always leaves with the feeling that they're not part of the group, that they're getting ganged up on, that that it's always more difficult and just not a fun experience. Like, And I'm, and I'm not saying that's, that's uh, for everyone because I've read online where overseer players enjoy doing that. They love doing that. They have fun playing it. But I'm just saying I have not seen it. And it's been through a bunch of different groups. Yeah. And I there there are a number of reasons for it. We've tried to identify some of them. But at the end of the day, that's the genre, that's the design space that Omega Protocol is in. So when I say that it's the absolute best by a large margin of any of these 1v all games, I absolutely mean it. But by the same token, most of the time, almost all the time, I would rather play one of the co-op versions available. I'd rather play something like Too Many Bones, something even like uh, Space Cadets Away Missions, or even something like Seal Team Flicks or Sentinels of the Multiverse, even though those are very, very different games. Precisely because the dynamics are better and I don't have to worry about things like the balance. I don't have to worry about things like the mentality of all the players involved. As a one-on-one game, I think Level 7 Omega Protocol is possibly at its best. But again, when you're talking about two-player head-to-head games, the competition there is fierce. And there's a lot of great two-player games. So it's a bit awkward in that sense. But if you love 1v all games, I can recommend Level 7 Omega Protocol unreservedly. But I, I... as you say, I've read about these people that love being that one against the all, but that's just not something that I personally enjoy very much, not something that I've encountered in person very much. I got two points. From playing a lot of Descent, I found that when they uh, make these campaigns, they make them back and forth. So almost always the first one, the first mission always favors the heroes, and then it flips flop back and forth because assuming you're playing the campaign, and maybe when playtesting, they just find that it's really hard to keep the balance, so they sway it back and forth purposely so people get an even amount of wins. Maybe they've done the same thing. And I just want to talk about, like you said, in all the Overseer roles that I've seen so far, Omega Protocol is by far the best. Mark's touched on a little bit that you use this adrenaline to activate all of the monsters. But not only that, there's all these special abilities that you get at the beginning of the game that you can feed the adrenaline into. Like, it's like, I'm going to spend some on moving these guys, but then they have these special abilities. I got to save some adrenaline for that. So it's a whole, it's not just activating your guys and shooting your guys. It's all these other things you get to do as well. Yeah. A lot, just all the elements of level seven Omega Protocol, I absolutely love. Even and I and I even you know borderline like the line of sight system. But at the end of the day, I, when thinking about why doesn't it hit the table more often? Why isn't it the case that I'm not playing more of this game? It really is the case that I don't want to play one v all games very much. And I think that fundamentally, I just vastly prefer co ops uh, setups. And this is not just true of bro- quote unquote dungeon crawl type games. This is just true of all things, whether it's a Euro type, Euro management type game or anything like that. I don't want a one v all experience. There, there are not a whole lot of Euro-type 1VL games, admittedly. Most of them are sort of dungeon crawl games. But there's a reason, I think, why the market has been moving increasingly towards co-ops in this, in this space. And it's definitely a desire that I can sympathize with. This is not to say, just, just to contextualize things, this is not to say that I invariably prefer a co-op to a competitive game. That's not what I'm saying remotely. 
In fact, all things being equal, I probably prefer competitive games to co-op games by a narrow margin. But in this kind of game, if you tell me that I can either do it co-op or have one person more or less, quote-unquote, running the game or running the opposition, I'm going to prefer co-op. I, just, I think it's just the sense of adventure, the sense of we're going on a story together, we're experiencing like this you know, thing together. I think it's just better felt doing it as a group as opposed to you know, fighting against one particular person, in my opinion. Right. So I think I've covered all my good points as well, except for... Uh, replayability, and this just leads back into what we've already talked about, all the different kit cards that you can choose from, from either, you know, uh, all the different characters you can choose from, their own kit, the general kit, and the fact that even the different missions themselves are going to be different every time you play, because after you lay out the map, the overseer gets to pick all these different door cards that he's going to put on the map. They're going to be different every time. And there's also all these room cards that get put out all over the map. They're going to be, it's very reminiscent of, of Mutant Chronicles. If you've ever played that, you open up the door, you flip over the cards. It tells you what bad guys or what isn't going to be in that room. And that's going to change up every, every campaign mission as well. And the fact that there's tons of different campaign missions. So at the end of the day, I really, really do like Level 7 Omega Protocol, but I'm beginning to question how long this genre is going to have any serious grip on me, especially considering how many excellent co-op tactical combat games that keep coming out. And so if you like 1v all games, if you like being an overseer, and you haven't tried Level 7 Omega Protocol, then I think you really want to jump into this Kickstarter with both feet. On the other hand, if you already have a number of these co-op combat type games, and you know, you're not really looking for, for a return to form for the 1v-all, I think you might be able to skip on it, to be frank. Uh, I'm very glad that I jumped on my copy. I've enjoyed all my time with it, but I think there is a reason why it doesn't hit the table more often, and I think that we've done a, a, a pretty good job trying to identify why that is. Yeah, and... As far as the Kickstarter goes, it doesn't look as though they have like tons of stretch goals. It doesn't look like they're going to yeah, go. No, with, they're no not stretch gonna, goals. No stretch goals. They're not going to go with a, a co-op. Nope. Variant. No. The only the only rules change they flagged is to the line of sight system. So it's just going to be more of the same. But still, like you said, if you find someone that has a copy, give it a try, and maybe get in on this Kickstarter. It looks like a good deal. I have pledged for the additional content. You know, there's going to be a, an alternate sculpt for the the team leader. There's going to be some new tiles. There's going to be some new scenarios, stuff like that. And I, I, I've gladly pledged for that, and I'm, I'm glad that it's being reprinted. It's a, it's a wonderful design. But I don't know, knowing what I know now, if I had the opportunity of buying a copy uh, straight off, I don't know that I would. And that is Level 7 Omega Protocol. So today's topic is keeping games moving. And we're not going to fall back onto the slow, the one slow player type format that we've already talked about. This is just how to keep normal games moving, why certain games slow down, why games should uh, move quickly, stuff like that. Put it away. Put it away. Put your phone away. Put your effing phone away. (laughs) You piece of crap. Put it away. You look over at the table and you see the light reflect off their face and it's their turn. Put it away. It doesn't matter if they're if it's their turn or not. Here's the thing, and this I think is going to be a recurring uh, recurring issue for some of the behaviors that you can ask of your fellow players, and some of the behaviors that you can model to your fellow fellow players. There's frequently this thought that oh, it's not my turn, so therefore there's any number of things that I can do. And that look, if you have to go to the washroom. Whatever. Like, I'm not. I'm not going to say that you need to sit there in an adult, in an adult diaper rather than getting away from the table. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, when it's something like pulling out your phone to check things that are not important, or talking 
you know, talking socially to engaging in a prolonged conversation with somebody, just because it's not your turn or even though you've just finished, you are going to be distracting everyone else and you are going to slide the pace of the game simply because in social context, these kinds of behaviors are contagious and you're modeling the behavior for everybody else. And when someone sees somebody take out their phone or when someone gets up to go talk to somebody else or when you're and I do this all the time I admit I'm bad at it or when some other person who's not playing the game is talking with somebody and they think oh well you know it's not their turn yet what difference does it make you are going to cause the pace of the game to 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 to, to slow down and sometimes that's okay if you're playing a really quick game then by all means when a 15 minute game turns into a 40 minute game with lots of social interaction that tends to be okay but when you're sitting down to a two hour game and you're going to push it into three or four hour if four hour game that's not cool so put it away well i want to start this conversation off with is assessing the situation like know who you're playing with the mood of that particular game or that particular night and the actual game that you're playing. Like, you know, is it, you know, all we're all just going to hang out, you know, and play this half an hour game over three hours? You know, is that, you know, the type of thing that's going on? Just stuff like that. Or do you, do you already know this one particular player plays slow or, you know, they don't know the game or the game itself is very complicated and, and, and you need to stop and, teach the game over and over again as you go. So just take all of these things into account and then, you know, make sure the pace of the game. Because when Mark was talking about, you know, breaking and talking to someone else, there's like an immersion in the game when everybody is concentrating and they're already planning two or three turns ahead of time and everyone is focused on what's going on, then the game clicks and goes quickly. And as soon as one person breaks off, sort of like the bubble breaks and this, and you look around the room and, and then suddenly it's your turn and you, you had your, your next eight turns planned out, but now you don't even know, you know, what game you're playing anymore. So it's just one of those things. One of the games we did play, but we didn't talk about over the past couple of weeks is we played a game of too many bones with three players and Too Many Bones on the box says 60 to 120 minutes, which, by the way, is a grotesque lie. I, we didn't really flag that when we did a review of the game, but Too Many Bones is really, with two players, it's a solid two hours, and every player you add past that, you're just increasing the time that much more. So our game was about three and a half hours, I think, but it didn't feel that long. For one thing, everyone's head was in the game, and that helped with the immersion, and it helped with 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 uh, time passing quickly. It also is the case, and this is the other thing that I really want to stress, is that many hands make for light work. This time, I, I did something that I really should do more often, and that is up front, when, when setting up the game and when giving the rules refresher, I delegated right away. I said, all right, Walker, you are in charge of helping me set up the baddie queue. And every time a, a fight broke out, Walker started grabbing things and helping so that that really helped helped with not just the time, but it also made it feel like the game was moving, moving faster than a three and a half hour game. So I really do think that a little bit of upfront delegation can really help with the immersion of everyone involved so that it's not just the most experienced player who's exclusively in charge of rummaging around in all these components. And it doesn't matter what kind of game it is. You can, you know, toss someone a, a deck of cards and say, okay, I haven't explained the rules yet, but this deck of cards is, you know, the, the bonus cards. You're in charge. It needs to be shuffled. You're sitting next to it. Anytime anyone needs bonus cards, you hand them out. Stuff like that. I really find that that helps with making sure that everyone's mind is in the game in a pleasant way, not in an onerous way. And it makes sure that no one uh, feel no one feels like they can give themselves permission to tune out. And if you feel as though some games take too long, just make sure you know the rules in and out. That way, when something comes up, you can deal with it quickly. And the same thing, if you feel the game is taking too long and you keep getting hung up on rules, then just stop 
getting bogged down on the rules. Just, you know, like smooth it out. Something comes up, just go, you know what I mean? Just bypass say, oh, we're just going to do it this way and just move on. Like stop getting, you know, hassled with rules all the time. And I think as a corollary to that, make sure that you've internalized the rules document. It's not just a question of internalizing the rules, but one of the biggest casualties I find of people learning the rules through online videos is not even the fact that 99% of the time the online videos get something wrong or that 99% of the time people forget a lot of the details and make it up ex post facto, is if you're not familiar with the rules document, you're not going to be able to refer back when rules questions invariably arise or when you forget a little detail. So if you don't know where things are in the manual, and I agree, sometimes some manuals make that more difficult than they need to be. I'm mentioning no companies named Fantasy Flight in particular. But if you have if you're familiar with where things are in the rules document, you you might have to it's not going to cut down on the number of times you need to look things up, but it me- means that the flow will be interrupted less when you do. All right, another point I have is to be ready when it's your turn. Absolutely. We've talked about this before and it really it really bears repeating. Yeah, preach right. Walker. I I will preach and I think I'm pretty good at this. I think when it's my turn, I have it planned out. I usually, while I'm watching other people play, I have two points here. So the, uh, is the changing game state. So there's sometimes, you know, the, the game state will change. So when it's your turn, you might have to think about it and, and think. But some games, you have to wait a, a good five minutes before it's your turn. Can you not come up with, it? you know, plan B if this happens, plan A if this happens. And you have a subset of things ready to go. So when it is your turn, you know, you do what you need to do and it moves the game along. One thing that I've, I've come across very recently, and this actually uh, really came to a, a point when we were playing Master of the Galaxy, I think that it's really helpful for everyone when they've done their turn to just verbally announce that their turn is over. Because somebody might be paying attention, trying to think about what they're going to do on their turn, or sometimes the end of your turn is kind of optional. Like you get to keep doing things until you think you're done and you know you're done. But very often it's the case that someone will just be sitting there saying, are, are you finished? Oh yeah, yeah, sorry. I finished 20 seconds ago or something, something to that effect. So I really find it helpful even when you think it might be clear. For example, we were playing a game of Sentinels of the Multiverse and at the end of your turn, you draw a card. That, that signals that your turn is over. But there are lots of ways you can draw cards in Sentinels of the Multiverse. So people would be in positions like, was that your end of turn, drawing a card? And so even though I thought, well, it's clear that my turn is over, I just drew a card. They don't know why I drew a card. So I really am going to try going forward whenever I'm playing a game to just verbally announce whenever I'm done with my turn. It's like, and I'm done. Just so that the person next to me knows that, that they need to go. Since you brought up Master of the Galaxy... I'm going to, because t- I was going to talk about this anyway, is that designers are designing games to help this flow along. Like instead of them saying at the beginning of your turn, draw a card, because that is a game killer right there, because now you got a person reading the whole card, or now they're saying at the end of your turn, draw a card. So now you have your whole, you know, around, so you decide if you're going to use that card. Unfortunately, Masters of the Galaxy did not do this. We just implemented it ourselves. They say you the three cubes that you draw at, at during your turn, you draw the very beginning. Yeah. We just implemented that. No, we're not doing that. We're drawing it because it's not going to affect it. If you just don't show anyone what cubes you draw, then at least you can plan out your turn. And when it is your turn, it's boom, boom, boom. Next person goes. That being said, whatever we did say about Master of the Galaxy, that game moved. And, and we got a lot of turns in. It went very quick. That's actually... So that issue of when to draw a card. I remember reading an article 
by Bruno Faiduti. Bruno Faiduti ran uh, a very great blog for many years, and now it's morphed into something else, and he publishes less frequently. But he's a very interesting guy, even though I don't like a lot of his, his designs. And he talked about when to draw a card as a matter of design philosophy. He said that the fundamental difference, or a fundamental difference, because there are many, between him and Reiner Knizia was in a Reiner Knizia game, you draw your card at the end of your turn so you can plan out what happens next at the start of your next turn. Whereas he, Bruno Faiduti, would rather have you draw a card at the start of your turn so you can spend the time between turns hoping for something. And at the time of reading it, Walker has just... Don't shoot the messenger, Walker. Don't kill me. He started reaching out for my throat as though I were the manifestation of Faiduti. I'm with you, Walker, and I'm with Dr. Knizia. The way to do it is to preserve the game flow and give you some time to think rather than sitting there idly dreaming, maybe I'll get a red card next turn. And Randomly, that be nice? Because, you know, because I'm going to dream about something that's completely random. That's, well, that's well it's, about, it's about managing the... I will give him this. It's about managing the experience. It's about what kind of experience you want the game to have. But even for games of the complexity that Bruno Faiduti tends to design, which is to say not very much, I would still argue that the social benefit of the game moving quickly and of giving you additional time to consider what to do, you should still be drawing cards at the end of your turn. Keeping the conversation game-related or even gaming-related. So, like, when it's not your turn, you know, you don't turn and say, hey, guess what happened to me today? Or, you know I mean? I'm not saying you can't engage in normal conversation, but just knowing that if you're over you know, overexcited, then you're going to make the person whose turn it is stop what they're doing. So just analyze how the game is flowing. And if it's already taking a long time, then just try to keep conversation game-based or gaming-based and and keep it quiet and keep it to yourself. And to be clear, we're like we're probably sounding a lot more dictatorial we than are, we but, actually but that's are. Because we're talking about this particular... Precisely. Yeah, And I think subject. you're right. You, you have to be conscious of the context. When a game is moving very, very quickly and it's clear that someone knows what they're going to do on the next turn, absolutely. Idle chit-chat from, from time to time is absolutely fine, even in the context of uh, buzzkill people like me. It's just... You have to think before your idle comp. You're, you're engaged in a very specific social activity. We've said this before. And you have to think before the idle comment, is what I'm about to do about to throw a curveball into what everyone else is doing in the shared experience? And surprisingly often, the answer is yes. And so just to be conscious of that possibility, I think, is what we're trying to emphasize here. The other point I have is that you must make sure you openly mock anyone that asks about a rule in the middle of the game. That way, everyone else will be afraid to ask further rules questions. Oh, I've got that covered. I'm glad you like that. I'm glad you enjoy that practice that I have. Also, you also have to uh, steal parts from other games. You have to take the paw from... Snow Tales. From Snow Tales, and you must keep that with every, you keep it on your table so you can use it with all of the games. And when people are taking a long time for their turn, you throw this paw at them, and it's just the overall gaming symbol of you are taking too long on your turn, move it along. For people who are uh, unfamiliar, there was, uh, there was just this cardboard token in Snow Tales, and they said you should give it in front of somebody, uh, put it in front of somebody who's taking too long to consider their move because it is the big paw token, and now you've given them the big paws. It's the same principle as the only form of communication you're allowed in Magic Maze, Walker's favorite game, because he, as he famously said, and if we ever have t-shirts, moving left is not a game. The only way you're allowed to communicate with people is just to give, just to take the red pawn and stick it in front of them, which is to say, it's your turn to do something now. And <laughs> I'm not necessarily in favor of importing that in every game, but it is a, a nice little feature where it was. Again, I, I've commented on this before. I had a friend a friend of mine back in Cambridge, uh, Eric Royce, the designer of Spirit Island, he sometimes liked to play games that, you know, just normal competitive games with a timer. 
And not that anybody would get extra points at the end of the game if they'd spent the lowest amount of time. And not to penalize anybody if they if, if they had the highest time or anything like that. It's just when people know they're being timed, things go very quickly. We knocked out a game, uh, a five-player game of Hansa Teutonica in about 30 minutes as a result. Just because, the you know, it's, it's just the, obser- uh, the observer effect. When you know you're being timed, you go faster. I'm not quite at the level of, of doing that, even as a, as a social experiment. But it is an interesting feature of when you're being timed. All right, I have one point to make about things that go wrong when games take too long, because I've seen it happen, is when people feel the game needs to speed up or the game is taking too long, they start to take people's turns for them. They say, you can only do this and this, so just do this and get on with it type thing. Or if it's <laughs> or if it's near the end of the game, it's like, well, you can't get any points anyway, or you're not going to win anyway, then just do this so we can get this game moving. And you, and, and you have to please not do that. You have to remember that the whole game is the whole experience and you'll ruin the experience for that person and maybe even the whole table if it doesn't go off well, if you do those types of things. And often it makes things take longer because you're interrupting the thought process of whoever's turn it is. And now, you know, you've accused them of doing something. So immediately, instead of thinking about their turn, they immediately start thinking of the veracity of your statement. And rather than thinking about what to do, they start dissecting that. It's it's, it's a whole thing. I've, I've... as a corollary to that, though, there's one thing that I've been considering, and this is one of those issues where faster play it goes hand in hand with being a more conscientious fellow game player, and that is, you know, trying to recalibrate the proper level of cooperation in co-ops. This is not, this isn't really the sock puppetry problem. This is just more about how much kibitzing should you expect in every given move, and you know, it is liberating to a certain extent to limiting the amount of input that somebody gets in their turn and then just saying, well, you're on your own now. (laughs) Go ahead and do it. Off you go. And inculcating an environment where it's okay to make mistakes. And I think this is true in both competitive and co-op games, but it's particularly true in co-op because people sometimes internalize social pressure. And that is, and I'll quote another friend of mine from Cambridge who said, misplays are interesting, play faster. And it is absolutely the case. Misplays are interesting. And in an environment where everyone accepts that it's okay to make mistakes, everyone's going to have more fun and play more quickly. And the games are going to be more interesting as a result. And this is true of co-ops as well. So I'm. it's not, again, it's not the micromanagement of sock puppetry. It's just more encouraging people that it's okay that they ended up in the wrong place. And it's okay that they did a thing that then didn't trigger your unique ability. And it's okay that they wandered into the Rancor's nest and got the, yeah. their feet. Their I've always found that this opens up whole new game states and some combos that you've never even seen happen before when you allow people to play their own game. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good note to end on, just encouraging people, giving people enough space to make mistakes. I think that that is... Uh, you know, it serves to emphasize a, a, a friendlier and faster environment as a nice sort of counterpoint to our no talking, no phones, no socializing, no eye contact policy that we normally have the rest of the time. Play the game or I'll kill you. Play or draw. Play, Play or, or draw. draw. Play or draw. So that's going to close us out for this episode. Thank you so very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope to see you again soon, and a couple of weeks in advance, happy Arkhipov Day, which is on the 27th of October. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. 
Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.